0: Welcome back to Cyber Context, the podcast featuring Jonathan Moore, the Chief Technology Officer of Spider Oak. I'm Christian Whiten. Um, You know, we have uh, an interesting development in that. I was wondering, with Jonathan, with some of the increase in crime, when we're going to see some good old-fashioned vigilantes? Are we going to see a redo of the Dirty Harry movies, of the Charles Bronson movies of the 70s and 80s? Uh, and as it turns out, we we have one example not from Hollywood but from the digital world, if you will, uh, a gentleman who was attacked, uh, cyber hacked, uh, cyber attacked, if you will, uh, or hacked by North Korea, um, and didn't really like the response uh, he was getting, which I guess was no real response from from the U.S. government or from other people who who might be willing to help, and so who, who took it upon himself to take down North Korea's internet. Um, you know, I was always a little bit amused/slash bemused working on North Korea issues at the State Department. I want to say that their main English website, KCNA, the Korean Central News Agency, was actually hosted in Japan for many years, um, leading one to wonder if they had any servers in North Korea. I, apparently, they have they have some, and apparently, they were taken offline. Uh, what do you think about this this development? Yeah, I mean, I think it's
1: a, it's an interesting story. Um, you know, so to, for the background, you know, about a year ago, um, some North Korean um, operatives, hackers, uh, gained access to their own Chrome zero-day, meaning an unpatched vulnerability. Well, an ex- a exploit exploiting a unpatched vulnerability in Chrome, and instead of using that directly for political or financial gain. They said, Hey, well, what if we went and hacked some of the best security researchers and tried to get more zero days? We'll see is the going narrative of how that happened. And they did, and they attacked people in China and the US and and all over the globe, which is interesting that they were willing to take the risk to hack Chinese things as China is sort of, you know, North Korea's strongest ally um, or most powerful ally, if not strongest uh, or closely tied. But the And one of the things that was really stood out in that incident is in the U.S. The public national response to that in the U.S. was a Twitter thread with a bunch of cyber researchers being like, what just happened? Did you get hacked? Like who, what? And all the organization was civilian, at least in the public eye. And, uh, you know, those people felt that the FBI and the federal government if they were contacted do too little too late, didn't really help them recover and barely even checked on them. And so fast forward a year later, one of the victims of that attack decided that, you know, a year later, there's been they hadn't seen any real public response or, uh, you know, to North Korea on this particular incident. And so they took it into their own hands to embarrass North Korea personally. And I think it's important to say embarrass. Uh, because, you know, so are they harming the people of North Korea? Well, not really, because they don't really have internet access at all. So taking down North Korea's internet doesn't really attack the people. It is really very much against the state. It's not, they don't have a private sector that depends on the internet because they don't let them have that. Um, so, and what they, they're, they've attacked websites, they've attacked the routing infrastructure of North Korea, and just generally caused mischief. And I think it is really mostly that from at least at this point from the outside, you know, to embarrass the regime more than really take them. Because like you mentioned, it is mostly propaganda sites and things that are outward looking. I mean, maybe they'll t- manage to take it further and go steal some of the Bitcoin that North Korea has stolen and give it back to the people or something. I'm not sure. Um, right. And it also doesn't directly attack, affect, as I understand it, North Korea's Hacking capabilities either because they don't actually operate domestically. I, I, the you know mode of operation, as I understand it, for North Korean hacking assets is they say, look, well, you know how to use computers. We're sending you to Indonesia or somewhere else in the South Pacific. Here, you know, here's some starter money. Now, what you've got to go do is steal enough money to keep yourself fed and housed, uh, and you know, occasionally do you know send money home. And you know, maybe occasionally they'll direct them to take some particular action, uh, but it's it is almost almost as if you know that it's almost more like you know uh, a privateer than an actual military person. Uh, you know, they're not they're not in the chain of command. They're not being resourced from the top. They're told here's your your right to go do things and. Um, go do it and take care of yourself.
0: Right, that and so that's what the North Koreans are doing, and 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 we yeah. have reports that you know that's what the Russians sort of do as well, and who knows about the Chinese? Uh, you know, you're not a, you're not a lawyer, um, but uh, you know, having seen a lot of things um, on our side of the ledger? I mean, is it legal to do this? And I assume no one's going to be too upset at this guy for causing an embarrassment? And as you mentioned, it's not like he shut down hospitals and people. Are, well, it's are hard I, I look way.
1: actually. Actually, I'm quite sure it's not legal in the U.S. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. what would the U.S. do? Extradite extradite him to North Korea? And that seems rather that's, unlikely. So, I mean, I think it's not so much that the the U.S. sees this action as legal. It's that you know the 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 harm is foreign and to an actor we wouldn't extradite him to. So, I believe it's a him. That's at least that's the the gender they've uh, given themselves online. I think this. This person hasn't said who they are. I think they're working under the pseudonym Hacker X or something like that. Mm. Um that that they're not they're not publicly admitting who they are in the real world. Um Uh because they don't want undue attention, I suppose. Although they're still very public. And I'm sure people I'm sure people in the know know who this is. I'm not in the know on this case (laughs) (laughs) though.
0: That's that's yeah, that's not the best strategy. It's that that you're Your sort of enemies know all about you, but the general public who might be on your side doesn't know about you, but whatever, he he or she or whatever can take care of uh, security. Um, So does that also hold, if you're you're Microsoft, if you're Google, that you really can only do defensive things against uh, cyber actors uh, who are hostile, that you really can never Established deterrence because you can never say, "Oh, look, here's you know, we see here's someone who's trying to infiltrate, who's trying to disrupt. Uh, let's let's you know, screw them. Let's uh, let's hit them with something. Let's hit them with a simple DDoS or or something more sophisticated." That that's your your corporate counsel is always going to pour water on that. Yeah, well, I think there's
1: really three sides to that, right? So there certainly is some counteractions performed legally, where you see large botnets taken down, and things like that, where you know Microsoft will work with. Uh, Law enforcement locally or abroad, and help take actions, you know, with, you know, warrants with with sort of, you know, the appropriate paperwork against these groups. Um, I think when you say DDoS's and things like that, a lot of the challenge of this is that, you know, you can't just respond to the machines that are attacking you because they're almost always compromised machines, machines of some third party, and so you're talking about Uh, You know, you know, you're talking about attacking a third party that's an unwitting, you know, uh, participant in this attack and denying them their capabilities that they're using their equipment for because they've been hacked. Um, But, you know, that said, no, it's not legal. And U.S. companies are not authorized to take legal action. But I certainly hear, you know, in, around the whispers that that, in fact, many of them do in some cases that it's not legal or at least the it's not it is not clearly legal. Maybe it's some of it's in the gray area. Um, and but it is something that happens anyway. Um, again, I don't I'm not personally privy to any details on any of this, but that's kind of the word you hear.
0: Uh it's like the the early days of Las Vegas where crime was really low because only the right people got killed. Uh <laughs> <laughs> kidding, of course. Um, this sort of opens up the broader area of, of hacktivism. Um, and as you point out, if if you sort of get the 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 victim rights and the jurisdiction right. Then you know what you do may not be um, on the up and up, but but may not have a consequence. So you know if you're going after North Korea or the Iranian government or the Russians, um, oh, Debbie, are you noticing any trends there? I always sort of think of WikiLeaks of of, of being somewhat sophisticated in this area and having a political agenda. Uh,
1: well, I I think that's a really good point, political agenda and what's going on because I think most of what you see out there is not uh, uh, that is hacktivism is state actors that are leaking you know that for for political gain leaking information about other parties that they have hacked through their espionage or offensive cyber programs and WikiLeaks in particular Glucifer 2.0 who is responsible for a lot of the the leaks uh, about the DNC and and those kind of things, and particularly you know during Hillary's campaign, is strongly tied to Russian intelligence, and that it's just a Russian front to channel smear a smear campaign uh, against the DNC because they apparently thought it was or, or seemingly thought it was to their advantage to to discredit the Democratic Party and candidates at that time. Um, you know, and it was a way to communicate that propaganda to the And it was not it was propaganda. It wasn't purely uh, documents they leaked. There was fairly clear cases of um, forgeries mixed in with the real documents that were leaked, as I understand again i'm not I'm not an expert on this particular thing, but that's my understanding of the situation. Uh, and much of what we see, and I think probably coming from every nation. Is what you see as activism is in fact state activism. Now that's not to say all of it. Oh, interesting, right? We see there is some some interesting. It's like Venus Fisher is who uh, compromised. I believe it was. Uh, now I'm blanking on the name. I think it was. It was. I think it was hacking team. Yeah, in Italy. Um, I, I we should check that. Um, but. Um, they deeply compromise that, and, and so what, who is hacking team? They're they're like one of like NSO group. They're one of these groups that provides uh, uh, hacking toolkits to governments, and all and almost all of them are Western nations, and almost all and all of them swear we only give it to good guys. We don't give it to oppressive regimes, and yet over and over again, <laughs> um, their tools are have found to be hacked. You know, hacked journalists. Who in oppressive regimes, and very often those people die, um, or are jailed for long periods of time. So I think there's a a real, and this is there's this other whole discourse that that is happening right now about these sort of arms vendors, commercial arms vendors in the sort of cyber regime, if that's a decent metaphor. Um, so there's that case, and then there's of course the interesting cases of the leaks of was that there's there was the Pandora Papers, and then. There's like three different leaks of different papers uh around um financial institutions that set up tax havens and other things for the ultra wealthy. Yes. Um and so there's been repeated leaks from those and it's not been it's it since they're leaks from multiple different companies, it doesn't seem like it's you know one source inside a company leaking or probably even multiple. That probably is the result of a hacking campaign as well, I would believe. Um, uh, you know, and and so there are some other ones like that. And, and you know, you know, and,
0: yeah. Uh, what was actually, it's funny, I, I some of the Panama Papers, some of the, I forget what it was. I was Googling someone and information came up and I had to click a box and say that I understood that, that there are actually lawful reasons to have an offshore account and that someone's presence in the Panama Papers wasn't... Um, uh, you know, clear uh, indication of guilt, but nonetheless, was that just sloppy? Uh, you know, someone with a weak password and and, and the usual uh, hacks, or was it something more sophisticated? They're, they're,
1: I have not seen any reporting on how that information was obtained, and there's more. I mean, there's the, was it the Pandera Papers that followed that, um, and you know, these have been and there's still reporting coming out of these. There, they've a lot of, I mean, shown sort of a lot of interesting things. There's very interesting information about how. You know, so, you know, how Putin's, uh, how power and money flow around Putin, but he doesn't hold any. Um, hmm. You know, so uh, and there's really interesting things about how that how that the the money in Putin regime works um, that has come out of that. Another really interesting thing about the more recent leaks is how one of the favorite tax havens now is Delaware and that it's not <laughs> random small countries and islands that the US has become a a tax haven uh, to hide money for the ultra wealthy. So there's some really interesting reporting that's come out of that um but uh we don't know how all those those documents were collected but it it certainly does look like that was the result of hacktivism.
0: Yeah, that that's interesting. I guess <laughs> <laughs> sort of hiding something in plain sight, don't go for the Cayman Islands or the Seychelles or something that's automatically going to stand out on a tax return or or its absence from a tax return if the IRS finds out about it. But hey, Delaware, that's where so many companies are incorporated, so many corporate accounts, why not?
1: Um, I believe it's Delaware. Yeah. Some of these facts, I get a little off, but...
0: What, um, switching gears... Um, a little bit. I understand. You know, the recent development in Seattle, just on our topic of of cybersecurity in general, uh, that a, um, um, a terrestrial based FM station was 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 taken offline by a somewhat novel um, development with an image file. Uh, something that we know how. Well, we don't know if it it's is, been weaponized, but could be right. This,
1: this wasn't uh, the FM station that was taken offline. This was a large portion of. I believe uh, Mazda cars or a significant chunk of Mazda cars. And so this is an FM station broadcasting in HDFM. And one of the features of that format is that it has a data channel. And so they'll like push album art, you know, for if you are listening to a song, they'll have the album art for that song or something like that. And inadvertently this station broadcasts a file without a file extension and there was a bug in the this particular car's infotainment system that caused it to permanently fail when it received a file without a file extension on it. You know, so that's like if you have dot you know GIF or dot TXT, it received a file with no dot something, and a mistake in its programming uh, caused that to permanently disable that thing. And apparently it's as they've not figured out how to fix it in the dealership and the whole unit needs to be replaced. That a wow. mistake causes a, a, a new fifteen hundred dollar part is now needed. I believe Mazda's going to pay for them all, but you can't get them now because of supply chain shortages. Of and course. I think though that that opens up though a really you know a really really important thing to think is that we think so much right now we're focused on the internet as a tax factor. But there are all sorts of other ones, you know, that radio is an interesting attack vector. And it's not one where we're the, the adversaries have been focused because, you know, most of the hacking adversaries grew up on the internet or on modems before that, but in the digital domain uh, or, or the, the sort of traditional uh, traditional information sphere. But it, it's, there are other places where that exists. And I don't think there's any reason to believe that other cars don't have other bugs that if somebody were to make an intentionally malicious file, they couldn't actually get remote code execution on these infotainment systems on these. uh, And, uh, you know, as we've seen with a lot of examples of car hacking, that you can start on the infotainment system and, you know, get control in some cases of critical systems on the vehicle that affect vehicle safety. So it's, it's, you know, I'm not saying the sky is falling here, but I think it's an interesting thing to realize that there are... More vectors than you might imagine, and sometimes you'll find them in surprising places. The fact that this happened accidentally to me indicates there's a lot of fragility in these systems. you know if somebody can accidentally break it, what would it be what what would happen if somebody intentionally tried to do it?
0: right well, that was my next question uh, you know with uh um and so this and it isn't even Tesla with some you know cutting edge. Uh, autonomous or or somewhat autonomous uh driving system um this is just you know the radio essentially on on a mazda um it, have car developers you think given more attention to cybersecurity for their software or firmware um than traditional software or is it sort of about the same where you know you make it you make it fast and, and then try it out in the real world and hope you spot all the the errors um you know <laughs> in beta well, testing I, which hopefully you're I, not doing at 100 miles an hour i
1: mean i think the answer unfortunately is a no mm-hmm. um you know and i think it's because again and what you 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 kind of allude to there the important point is that it's not autonomous vehicles that are rich to breach it's connected vehicles and what this points out here is that actually connectivity isn't even necessarily internet connectivity that Apparently, your HDFM radio is also a form of connectivity where data can be pushed to the vehicle. Um, and I think the challenge is, is that the, even for safety engineering, we, uh, you know, it, our approach to safety engineering doesn't apply to a safety engineering under adversarial input, right? Because if you think about this, you say, well, we want to come up with a system where there's only one in a million chance something could go wrong. Right. And so we say these 30 things would all have to go wrong in a row for the bad outcome to happen. And we're quite confident that under normal operation, that will happen once every 10,000 years or whatever your safety margin is. Right. So you think this is a very safe system. The problem is, is that what the goal of an adversary is, is to intentionally nudge the system through those 30 checkpoints. And so, yeah, they will not happen in a normal operation. But the adversary's job is sort of to trigger these black swan events. And if you, you know, if you want to see, if any of the, the listeners want to see kind of the depth of this, if you go and read some of the deep, um, deeper uh, exploits analysis that from places like Project Zero, and see how complicated some of these attack chains are, and the amount of work put into it, to to, to you realize that the adversaries are very good at pushing these things. And I think one of the models that that I like um, that's been published is this concept of weird machines. And so there's this sort of intentional machine that the software developer builds. And it has these various states and state transitions. And so like if the door is um, open you can have it in you can either have it on the locked or unlocked state. And if it's in the unlocked state, that allows the door to open. And then you can shut the door again. Um and sort of those, and then you can choose to lock the door again. And those are sort of the normal states. But actually, the the machines have more states that are more complicated because actually you can lock the door when the door is open. And now what happens when you shut the door? Oh, well, you know, if that's a deadbolt, oh, the door is not actually going to shut all the way. So you could, if you, you can imagine you programmed a computer to say, ah, well, whenever you shut the door, you should then lock the door. And now I know that once the door is shut, it will always be locked unless it's given an explicit unlock and open command. Well, if the adversary is able to then somehow convince the 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 you know robot operating the door to lock the door while it's open, and then it falls to its program, it'll shut the door, but it won't shut all the way because it'll be blocked to the latch and it'll lock it again. And now your system where you depended on this door being you know locked actually has this other state. There's the partially closed and locked state, which you didn't account for as the engineer. And the adversary's job is to figure out how to walk through that machine and get into those unintentional states and use those unintentional states to their advantage because it's not an intentional state of a door that it's open with the deadbolt uh uh closed right and so that's an unintentional state in the weird machine of your front door um and so there's the normal machine which doesn't include that state and then there's the weird machine which are all the states your door can actually exist in uh so uh, and so it's very hard. It's you can't take normal safety engineering standpoint. We say, what's the probability of these to outcome? What's the probability of this very rare event happening followed by this very rare event? Because if the adversary can control those events happening, they can push it through that system into that bad state and achieve their goals.
0: Right. So yeah, they're they're thinking that these faults are as likely as getting struck by lightning and they don't realize they're they're walking around in a thunderstorm with a lightning rod on their on their head. Um, yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. I think that's a decent analogy. It's like, well, they say, so
1: what's the chance of getting struck by lightning? Well, you know, if somebody puts a lightning rod on your head, it actually goes up a lot. <laughs>
0: right. Uh, I, you know, I'll be really impressed if someone can can hack uh, a car not by. I mean, if they could do it through the FM radio, then uh, maybe through the radar, maybe through the infrared or
1: uh, something. I, I mean, uh, some of the early some of the early har- car hacking work showed the ability to hack the car through the CD player by putting in a malicious CD into the CD player. So this is not unprecedented in the literature. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so uh, it's that is a good question. Like, what about, you know, what about all these systems we're adding, you know? The more avenues we add to communicate with the vehicle, the more opportunities the attacker has to send in malicious data.
0: Mm-hmm. Hopefully it was the Slayer CD. <laughs> um, you know, when you think about this uh, remote hacking, this of course brings us or can bring us to uh, another area where you've done a lot of work throughout your career and currently at Spider Oak, which is which is satellites in the sense that, um, you know, if through a simple radio you can um, you can affect a uh, malicious negative outcome in the real world, is it true that? But for the longest time until recently, satellites essentially were. And actually, I came across this again a, a bit in work with the government when realizing communication satellites. It's fairly easy for 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 people without a subscription to um, uh, to make use of their their systems and services if they aren't hardened. Um, originally, are our satellites fairly accessible to anyone with a radio that can can reach them. I mean, I yeah, I think historically there's
1: a lot of examples of that where it was assumed that. Because of the the specialized equipment needed to talk to them, um, and uh, the the unique radio frequencies some of them used, that that was enough protection itself. But that's never actually been totally true. Uh, you know, it's as you mentioned that there's the for for quite a while. You know, there was some U.S. military communication satellites, uh, bent pipe satellites, meaning they're just a receiver and a retransmit the signal. They don't, you know, process it, and it didn't have adequate security on it, or really any. Uh, and the one servicing the region and over the Amazon, people on the Amazon had a pressing need for communication, and that created enough motivation to make that equipment available. And you would find often that if you listen to those channels, that the government couldn't use it anymore because it was saturated with people talking about, uh, you know, football scores instead of um, <laughs> military operations. Um, <laughs> And, you know, there's the, 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 there's another famous case back, believe in the, the eighties of the max headroom hack where somebody, um, through some means, maybe physical access gained control of a ground transmitter at a local TV station and used it to overpower the, um, si- the signal for a, a TV relay satellite that was then re-syndicated to a bunch of places and broadcast them uh, with a max headroom mask on sort of saying weird things and being slightly lewd for like five or 10 minutes <laughs> before things are regained. So so it's historically true. And it's not clear that it's all that different for a lot of satellites today. You know, the FCC has only really started in the last, you know, five or so years pushing hard on the, the global mandate that you have to have protection on your communications uh, for space operations. And, you know, even people launching satellites a few years ago, that was a mandate, but it wasn't really enforced. Um, and so there's and a lot of those satellites have been up there for a long time and continue to be. And that's just for like very basic entry level kind of stuff, you know, uh, is people in the satellite industry are far more worried about loss of access to their satellite than they were. They had been traditionally kind of hacking. They don't like to put controls in place because that might keep them out in an emergency. And so there is this sort of transition is all of a sudden software-defined radio and motor controllers have made tracking and communicating with satellites accessible for even hundreds of dollars, um, in some cases, depending on the kind of bands and, and data rates you're talking about. Uh, all of a sudden, you know, many, many more people are able to talk to these satellites. And that the the previous trade-off towards, availability and recovery and safety is now potentially uh, at odds with uh, security, which is, again, going to affect those same things they're trying to protect. Nobody wants a system they can't fix. You know, if you spend $100 million on a satellite or even $5 million and, you know, another, you know, $60 million or $100 million on a launch, you don't want to go like, oops, I forgot to write down the password. It means you can never talk to your satellite again, right? So, so there is this tension in the satellite industry between being able to maintain and access the satellite and be able from from front friend, by friends and be able to secure it against adversaries. I think it's gonna. It's not actually. It's not as even a clear cut question of we just need to do better security, which we do. It gets a little more complicated when you really start pushing on how secure do we want to make this.
0: Right. Uh, why? Because it's not just encryption. It's actually um, I mean, I guess well, if, you can, you, if you can if you
1: make the lock so good, nobody can break in. What happens when you lose your key?
0: Right. Why? How would you lose your key? Because someone would corrupt it or, uh, or, or by your accident, own you, system.
1: Uh, you know, if if a fault happened on the satellite, if you had uh, a data loss event on the ground, you know, it's it's and I mean it by analogy. I don't necessarily mean literally forgetting the key, mm-hmm. but if through act you know, through incident or accident you lose the, your your authorized access to normally authorized access to the satellite, how do you get back in? It's not like terrestrially, well, what you do is you go to the data center and you go to the rack and you unplug it and you reformat the hard drive and you're good to go. Right? This is in orbit traveling, you know, at tens of thousands of miles an hour and very hard to reach. And, you know, it's where we have done maintenance on satellites, the space shuttle, it was generally believed that that was not economical and not a long-term <laughs> right. solution. You know, right. that we repaired Hubble, we, we replaced Hubble's main computer in a spacewalk. And it's generally, it probably would have been cheaper to launch another Hubble than to perform that operation. Uh, but, you know, but, but you know, it was a training exercise and an experiment for the government to learn about that as much as it was to fix Hubble. So, you know, it it, it had we, we learned a lot. And that, that learning was why we did it, I think, more than the cost savings, which were negative.
0: Right, right. Well, I think there's a Simpsons where Homer goes to space and they sabotage Mir. So sort of, you know, <laughs> same type of thing. Random question for you: Is there such a thing as in in public literature as a stealth satellite? Something, you know, because you think about the encryption and zero trust principles you might need to secure a satellite. But if you could deny access or even knowledge of of the data going back and forth, uh, is it possible to do that with lasers? So you're not transmitting something that's easily picked uh, up. There, and... there are certainly covert
1: satellites out there. I don't know how covert they, they are. There's different levels of covert. There are certainly some satellites have very dark bottoms. Um, They certainly can control their their emissions to make them more stealthy. Um, And if you have a license for Earth observation from NOAA and the FCC to take pictures of the ground, those licenses come with very clear restrictions that you're not supposed to point those, uh, those telescopes back out towards space. And I think the general understanding is because you might see things you're not supposed to um, <laughs> little green men uh, uh, that's I, I i I think
0: more likely government
1: assets sure yes. um, well, that's, but, I mean you
0: think from the from what we learned from the b2 and the f117 before it was uh, uh canned not canned but it retired um that there are certainly radar absorbing skins it just you think in the 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 vast vacuum of space that anything that catches a little bit of of sunlight would uh, would heat up and be distinguishable from its its background without anything very sophisticated but maybe i'm wrong maybe you can make something that Well i
1: mean you can you, know. you can do active cooling like I mean so you're already doing that on uh spacecraft like a, a big important part of spacecraft design is moving heat from one place to another and you get very good radiative cooling in space because if you point you know, so away from so earth is quite warm and it's going to heat your spacecraft but the black sky behind you is very cold and you can actually just do radiative cooling where you're you know emitting the energy as uh, as heat as as light you know infrared light as heat is uh, an effective way to cool um, so and that's like actually the James Webb Space Telescope has that that feature like a big feature it is this huge Sun shield to protect the the uh, very cold sensors, so to, to detect in some of the frequency bands uh well, the sensors need to be very cold, so it actually shades them from the light and then has active cooling to cool down that, the, those sensors and reject the heat elsewhere. So, cool. uh, I mean, and I think it, it is hard to hide things in space, though, you know, it has to, you have to go to, to these measures, right? You have to make sure it's not reflecting light back towards Earth. You have to make sure and say maybe, I, I'm not sure how... Uh, how easy it is to see heat signatures to satellites in space. I assume if you had in a lower orbit, orbit a telescope pointing out with uh, that could, you know, record in the, you know, the shortwave infrared, you could probably see things that were emitting heat. So You probably got to do that too. But uh, I mean, it's, there are assets out there which are attempting to hide. And especially the the, one of the things that has been hard historically is that, you know, satellites aren't really very maneuverable you know they're on an orbit and they're generally going to stay there and you can you have engines sort of maintain that orbit maybe do a little bit of maneuvering to avoid debris and other large debris and other satellites you know about but they can't radically change orbit but that's now changing you know uh we now have we now have and china has you know various spacecraft that fly in orbit and can change orbits and take close approaches to other spacecraft and and whatnot so uh, you know that that sort of pushes this still further so I may have known or insert it, but if it has a low signature and I'm able to reposition it, you can't find it by sort of repeatedly looking I mean it's it's you know there are there and and so there, there is a database of all of the um, the things out in space mm-hmm. um, there's JSPOC. Which you can go and find out the the orbits of everything, um, but it's also known there are things that are not in that database. And actually, a lot of amateurs have found a lot of them. Um, you know, and there's but but those are probably ones that are not taking as active measures, or uh, I don't know. We're we're a little beyond my knowledge at this point, but it's, <laughs> it's, it's, interesting. it's 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 certainly a a thing that is worked on, and it's and is of interest to various nations. I'm sure that there are technologies that we have not thought of. Um, that help enable uh, more covert missions in orbit.
0: Oh, interesting. Now one final question with um, you know what we see with satellites that I think if I'm not mistaken, there's sort of a an agreement, I don't know how explicit it is that once you're especially if you're in in geosynchronous orbit, once your satellite's life is over, you're supposed to park it in a graveyard uh, orbit, which I guess is a little higher. But the compliance with that is not not super. Does that imply that even though satellite, and I guess that's just a cost, right? I mean, your satellite, you could actually probably keep your satellite going a little longer if you didn't expend that fuel or energy to move it to a different orbit. Um, Whereas with cybersecurity in satellites, companies do have an incentive to do better at that. I don't know, as I look at this this idea that, well, you have this problem with space junk with satellites that are not being retired properly. Does that give us a pessimistic outlook on whether... um, uh, satellite manufacturers and operators are are going to do the right thing with with cybersecurity. Oh, I think the incentives have
1: to be in place, you know, and I think you know, I, I they're not right now, and I think that I mean, and there's a lot of interesting plays. Like I think we've mentioned before, you know, Lloyd's has pulled out of the market from insuring satellites against cyber attack. They will not underwrite that in a policy a policy that includes that um, very explicitly. Um, you know, and but, but there, but you know, towards space debris, there is work, you know. I mean, so SpaceX actually just lost 40 out of 49 uh, satellites they launched last week because of their space debris mitigation program. You know, so they launch satellites into a very low orbit and then raise them. And one of the reasons they do that, um, there are some other advantages for them in terms of. Spacing their satellites out appropriately, um, and managing their 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 positions. But one of the reasons they do that is so that if the satellite fails on deployment, then it will very quickly just fall back into Earth. So I think they I think I read that it was at um, 320 kilometers or something like that. Um, maybe it was even below 300. But that's an area where there's actually quite a lot of atmosphere. Like even at you know at the space where the space station is at, at 500 kilometers orbit there's quite a little atmosphere um and although it's not a lot to us you know we, you couldn't breathe it um by any means um we'd consider it a vacuum uh, as as you know air breathers to to things flying up there they it causes significant drag um you know every time the we we send a a spaceship up to the ISS before it leaves it'll usually bo- use the missile to boost the ISS back up into a higher orbit because that Fully degrades due to that drag. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, the, the point here is that they insert them in a low enough orbit that they will deorbit quickly. And so that that and that is done for space degree mitigation so that a failed satellite doesn't become space junk. It just burns up. So I think we we are seeing progress. You know, and I think at Geo, we're gonna we're gonna start seeing more and more progress as well because it's becoming full, right? There's only <laughs> Because I mean, there's is a very particular orbit that geo, geo sits in, and the number of places where you can park a satellite over uh, economically sort of viable regions is is approaching. With our with our current acceptable distance between satellites uh, is is starting to they're disappearing. and What we're of course doing now is reducing the acceptable business distance and saying, well, those margins are more than we need, but eventually we'll run out of space, and so there will be an economic incentive to to be a good player, or maybe you just won't get the next slot to replace that satellite.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, good. I think that's all the time we have for this episode. That was Jonathan Moore, the Chief Technology Officer at SpiderOak. I'm Christian White. And if you like what you heard, please subscribe to the podcast, leave a comment for us on Apple, and we'll be back soon with a new episode. Thanks.